I'd like you to open up your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians, we're going to be in chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. If you're having a hard time finding it, it's right after... Yeah, 1 Thessalonians. If you're having a hard time finding that, do what I do, go to the contents page. Hmm. 2 Thessalonians, three, uh, chapter 1, 3 through 12. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not, do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. So, last week... Uh, as I said a little bit earlier in the service last week, we took a look at the prayers of Paul. It was the first in a new series where we're, we're kind of looking at how Paul prayed and uh, what we can learn about Paul's prayers. Um, and and I'll, I'll tell you something. You know, we, we talked a little bit about this last week. This is a praying church. We do a pretty good job at it. And I, I don't say that arrogantly, um, but it's just a matter of fact that when we put out prayer requests, when we ask people to pray, we get a lot of prayer back. And they're good prayers. They're generally prayers for somebody who's struggling with something, perhaps with a health issue, perhaps with a financial issue or job, or, or they're, they're prayers of praise from time to time. Uh, they're, uh, we, 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 any number of prayers. These would be called supplications. Some people might call them petitions to the Lord. Uh, those are good, and the body of Christ needs them. Um, so we need to hear that people are praying for us. It edifies us and encourages us. But even as we look at that, and we look at, at how Paul began to begin his first letter to the Thessalonians and walked into a prayer, uh, the question rose up, is it possible that there's more? What if there's more to our prayer life than just a list of supplications and petitions? And by the time we were done with our time together on Sunday, we found out that there was a hint that there is more. Now, Paul, there was a strong hint that there's something deeper. Uh, so this week, uh, we're going to follow up that question. We, we said, was there more? Is there possible there's more? What if there's more? Yes, there is more. This week, we're going to take a look at what that more might look like. So it's it, so that we could recognize the opportunity for a deeper prayer life, a deeper walk in our prayer. 
So today's sermon is called So That. I'll explain that a little bit later on. This is part two of Pray Without Ceasing. And our passage today, um, Paul is going to show us three building blocks to prayer that if we pay attention to, they'll lead us to this, this, what does this more look like? So the first building block is praise. And we're going to see that in verses one through four. The second building block is promises, the promises of God. We'll see that in verses 5 through 10. And the third building block is the prayer itself, and that'll be in verse 11 and 12. So I want to take a look at how Paul begins this process of prayer, what he does to prepare himself and those he's praying for uh, for this prayer to occur. He concentrates on, watch this, he concentrates on things he can be thankful for. Now, this happens in verses 1 through 4, where actually 3 and 4. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. He's talking about the church at Thessalonica, the uh, uh, brothers and sisters there. As is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, verse 4, we ourselves boast about you in the church of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. So we see that Paul begins to give praise to God for what's happening in the Thessalonian church. And the first thing that he points out is that their faith is growing more and more. This word for abundantly, is, it, it's active. Uh, they're, they're, they're expressing their faith more. Uh, they're walking in it more consistently. Uh, they're going deeper in their faith. So the first thing he wants to recognize is that they're growing in their faith. They're becoming mature. They are a young church. Paul was not in Thessalonica very long um, he got chased out, but there were problems in Philippi. He got to Thessalonica. They, they, there are two major cults in Thessalonica, the cult of uh, the emperor and the cult of Kurinan. Um, both of them were getting upset because a lot of people were becoming Christians, and, and these cults were uh, counterintuitive to the Christian teaching. So the town got upset and chased Paul out. Paul ran to Berea. Uh, but Paul's concerned about the church that he left, that he just started. So he writes one letter, 1 Thessalonians, to kind of give them a grounding in their faith. It's very foundational in everything that it says. Now he's writing a second letter. And his second letter is addressed a couple of other problems they're struggling with. They're not, they're, they're not great, uh, but some teaching about the end times has crept into the church. Some people are saying that Christ has come back again. Uh, Paul wants to address that and remind them of the truth that they've already learned. Uh, So this is not a slap on the wrist. This is just a, hey, you know, let's go over what I taught you. Uh, But more than anything else, he wants to address the fact that the church in Thessalonica is under tremendous oppression. Uh, The whole town has turned against the church. Uh, So they're having a rough time with their worship, and Paul wants to encourage them. Now, Paul's letter could have started out with, you know, I'm writing you to correct you on your doctrine. You're listening to false teachers. I mean, Paul does this in other places, but what he does is he finds things to encourage the Thessalonians with. Instead of saying, you know, we got to get this straight. You got to get your Bibles right. You're not reading them enough. Paul says, you know, I'm thankful that you're growing in your faith. 
I haven't even seen you, and I'm hearing testimony about what's going on there. I'm thankful that you're growing in your faith, and I'm thankful that you're learning how to love each other. They're in a divided town. They're in a town that's filled with tension, and there are deities and temples to every other god in the world in this town, and there are factions and, and lobbying groups and whatever you want to call them, and he's saying, I'm thankful that you're learning to love each other, that you're learning to express the love of God. So there are two major things that if you're a Thessalonian and you're, you're struggling with all of these things that are going on, you're struggling with the tension of the town against the church. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe your friends are abandoning you. Maybe you've had arguments out on the street with other people. And Paul comes in and he says, look, I see some pretty good stuff here. I see some things I want to encourage you with. I know you're having a hard time. I know that you've made some difficult decisions. But I want you to know that your reputation is beginning to spread in, in the area. Now, and you, you see the Thessalonians going, really? Wow, this is encouraging. If somebody came up to you and said, you know, Leslie, you know, I've been watching you. You're walking a godly walk, and I can just see you growing in your faith and, and expanding in your love. That, that would be an encouragement. You know, this is another thing that Warrington Bible Fellowship does well. We're encouragers. Paul's doing the same thing with the Thessalonians. But look what happens here in verse 4. For your stead, we boast about you. He says, I'm, I'm telling all the churches about you. What's he telling them? Hey, man, that church is growing so fast. They got the best music. You could see, you should see their budget. You know, they got people out in the parking lot directing people. They've got a tram going all around the church so you can get a ride after the church. Okay? He said, I'm, I'm boasting for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. He's boasting about their trials. He's boasting about the hard time that they're going through. So he finds these things to be thankful for. I'm thankful for your love. I'm thank you for your faith. I'm thankful that you are going through hard times. Now, if you're a Thessalonian, you might go, what? <laughs> you know, the first two things are pretty good, but I, I could do without these hard times. You know, are you really bragging about these hard times, Paul? So, you know, he kind of, he sets this, this whole thing up for praise and, and lets it hang there for just a second. And even as we look at it, I want you to stop and consider how that attitude alone, that first building block alone, might impact your prayers. I've had to do this all week long. And if I did this, what kind of prayer would start to come from me? As, as I looked at the people I was praying about, if I looked at the issues I was praying about, and looked first for things to be thankful about before I went on to what I thought the seriousness of the issue was. Now, this is kind of interesting, okay? Let, let, me, let me put some feet to this. I have an Aunt Martha. Uh, I haven't seen her in quite some time. She lives in Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, she's about 84 years old. I have heard that she's struggling with Alzheimer's and dementia. Um, and uh, and I, I love every now and then when Aunt Martha comes to mind, I'll just say, Lord, would you, would you just heal her? Would you, would you give her clarity of thought? Um, would, you, would you give her uh, the capability to communicate clearly? Would, and, and so I ask for God to bless her. 
And, and, and I'll tell you something, there, there are prayers that are appropriate during a time like this. Uh, sometimes when people are getting older and suffering and you know that they're saved, I think it's okay to say, God, would you take them home with some grace and dignity? Uh, I mean, they're going to be with Jesus Christ. If we don't know the status of their salvation, we might, that prayer might sound a little bit different. Uh, but I can pray that prayer. That's easy. But what might go a little bit deeper, what might, go, uh, what might be a bit more difficult and a bit more of a challenge is to think of the things that I can be thankful for that are happening in Aunt Martha's life. And now I've got to stop and think about Aunt Martha a little bit more. You know, and, and the things that come, even as I begin to ponder these things, are how gentle she is, how sweet she is, the great love that she has for her family. If I know that Aunt Martha's saved, I, I can begin thanking God for the fact that she has evidenced her salvation, that the Holy Spirit is moving in her, that uh, I, I, see, I see that working in her. If she's not saved, um, I can pray that, Lord, I know that you're working somehow in her life. I pray that you would draw her onto you, that you re- reveal yourself to her. So, so I can pray a little bit deeper for Aunt Martha. Now, I like that. Amen. D- doesn't that sound good for the people you're praying with? Amen? Okay. Let's, let's amp this up a little bit. Let's take it to the people that are closest to us. Let's take it to the people that disappoint us. Let's take it to the people that don't meet our expectations, the people to perhaps have hurt us. Okay, now, I want to be able to pray for the people that have hurt me. I want to be able to pray for the people that have disappointed me. I want to be able to pray for the people that have not met my expectations of what they should do. And my prayer usually goes like, Lord, forgive them. Not a bad prayer and an appropriate one. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but what if there's something deeper? What if God is trying to work something in my heart and my life in the prayer that rises up for me? And, and if I follow Paul, Paul's first building block, I look at the person who's hurt me and try to find something I can be thankful for. Now we got a challenge. Okay, because i got to be honest with you, sometimes I don't feel like being thankful. Sometimes I would rather hold on to my hurt. Sometimes I would rather hold on to my anger. Sometimes I would like to throw my disappointment back at that person when the time is appropriate. But if I've got to slow down and go, what do I see God doing in this person's life? Where have I seen evidence of the Holy Spirit moving in them? Where have I seen the transformation that occurs to us when we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, when we repent from our sins and turn away from our unrighteousness and towards his righteousness and make him Lord of our lives? Where have I seen evidence of that in this person? And God, I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you that they're increasing in their faith. I want to thank you that They are expressing your love, an agape love, a godly type of love. Might that change the way we pray for the people around us? Yes, it will. So you see, Paul's first building block of giving praise and thanks is not just for the Thessalonians. It's for Paul. It's an attitude check. It's a heart check. He goes before the Lord and says, help me. I'm supposed to be thankful in all things, Father. I need you. Now, now, we could look at the Lord and go, 
I can't do that on my own. God would go, yep, you can't. <laughs> and he would look down from his throne and smile at you. He goes, you got that right. See, God's given us the Holy Spirit. God has given us the Holy Spirit to dwell inside us and guide us and direct us and counsel in things just like that. Well, what does that Holy Spirit look like? I need a letter. I need some writing on the wall. I need an audible voice. No, 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 no. It's a still, silent voice that says you shouldn't do that. How many times in Scripture do you read that you shouldn't be angry? Why are you angry? How many times in Scripture do you read that you shouldn't have expectations of other people that are higher than the expectations of yourself? You shouldn't be doing this. The question is whether or not we're going to listen. It's okay. If we don't listen, we're not going to get kicked out of heaven. We're just going to have a rougher walk while we're here. Paul says, prepare your heart. Check your attitude. Submit it to the Father. The first building block is find something to praise. Wow. I... And, and if we do that, it not only builds up the people that we're praying for, it builds us up as well. The second building block are the promises. This is in verses 5 through 10. This is, this is a tough passage here. Uh, verse 5 starts out with the word this. That refers to those trials that he just mentioned. And so now Paul's explaining why he's thankful for the trials that they're going through. He says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. He's saying, you know, this is evidence that God's working in your church. It's evidence that God's working in your life. It's evidence that you are indeed part of the kingdom. Now, it's not, not that you've earned part of the kingdom. It's that you, you are a demonstrator of the kingdom, that you are a worthy ambassador of the kingdom. You're, you're representing the kingdom accurately. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief, verse 7, to you who are afflicted as well as to us. Oh, I like that. To those that are afflicting you, God's going to punish. Yes! Do it now. I want to see the flames come down from heaven. I want the people that have afflicted me, that have hurt me, I want to see them burnt to a cinder. I smite. You know how much I love the word smite. I want to see the swords flying all over the place, you know, and, and, and Paul says, here's a promise of God that's going to do it. And when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. By the way, that eternal destruction is an ongoing verb. It's always being destroyed. Uh, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day, to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. We'll get to this in just a second, but I, I want you to see two things that just happened here. He, he defines what the promises are. So when, when it comes to the promises, we, we have a twofold meaning of the promises. Both of them are embedded right, right here in these verses here. What are his promises? We see in verses 1 through 5. What his promises concerning those who are persecuted is that they'll be vindicated, that they'll be lifted up, that their persecution will not be void, it will not be meaningless, that it will have meaning and purpose. 
that God will redeem them, uh, uh, lift them out of the persecution. And, and so, so the persecutors uh, will be vindicated, and those who do the persecuting will be punished. So the promises are, persecutors are going to be blessed. Those who have hurt the persecutors, those who have opposed God's people, which is just the same as opposing God himself, they'll be punished. Amen. Good. When is that going to happen? This is the, the second purpose involved in here, okay? Verses 7 to 10. They're going to happen at Christ's coming. I don't know if I like that. I told you, I want to see it now. I mean, my heart says, vindicate me. My heart says, justify me. Show them that I'm right. And they're wrong. God, show them that you're on my side. That's what I want to see. Paul says, you're going to have to wait. I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. I mean, I don't have much choice. But let me tell you something. I can decide not to wait. I can decide to let my need for vindication eat me up. I can decide to let it become a millstone around my neck and drag me down, stop me in my sanctification, stop me in my walk towards the Lord, consume me with needing to see an equal amount of pain levied on someone else. I can do that, or I can be patient. Isn't that what Paul's saying? Be patient. Be patient. Trust in God. His promise is this, that you will be vindicated when Christ comes back. Patience. I'm really good at being patient when I'm patient. You hear what I'm saying? I'm not so good at being patient when I'm frustrated. (laughs) I'm not so good at being patient when I'm impatient. And God calls upon us. and He's not asking us to be patient when we feel like being patient. He's asking us to be patient all the time. God calls on us to go contrary to our nature, which is to be impatient and conform to his nature. Now, follow me on this, okay? You and I, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, have been regenerated. We've been transformed and are being transformed. Our transformation is not complete yet. It won't be complete until we stand in front of him. What are we being transformed into? We're being transformed into the likeness of his image. We're being conformed to a godly representation of here on earth. Well, what does that mean? That means that we are slowly but surely, day by day, minute by minute, being conformed to the attributes of God. We're not becoming God, but he is making us holy so that on that day when we stand before him, there will be nothing between us and him. So, what what does that image look like? Well, God is love. God is many things. One of his primary attributes is love. Well, what does that look like? You don't have to look any further than 1 Corinthians 13, verse, starting with verse 4. 
if, if you look at that, it says love is. And there's a whole line of descriptors of love right behind it. Now, if, if you look at that, the descriptors are not adjectives. They are verbs in the Greek. They're verbs. They're things that we do. They're behaviors that we exhibit. And what's the very first one? God is, love is what? Patient. Do you think that runs by coincidence? That God is just, let's just put patience first. It doesn't really matter. I think God's trying to show us something. That if we're going to express his love, if we're going to be the likeness of his image, if we're going to be ambassadors for the love of Christ, vessels of grace and mercy, we start with patience. We start with patience. Now, you know, that's a good lesson. Amen. That's something good to remember. Why? Why would God have us do that? Brothers and sisters, God would have us do that because he was patient with us. You see, that's how we got saved. We earned condemnation. We earned that eternal destruction that we heard about in this passage. And God was patient with us and shed his grace upon us. Could we do any less than to be vessels of that grace and mercy and to express the same patience that God has given us? Now, if you understand that, you understand this, this whole concept of the promises, what the promises are, when they're going to be carried out, then here, here's, here's something beautiful. You can relax. You don't have to make anything happen. You can, you can be patient. You can be loving. You can be merciful. You can be gracious. Because your actions are not going to affect the outcome that's in God's hand. So you can choose to do those things or you can choose to strike back. You can choose to become bitter. You can choose to undermine the person who has injured you. You can choose to try to vindicate yourself. I think it's a futile effort. I don't think you're going to get anywhere with that. I think the only thing that you're going to do is end up frustrating yourself. So God puts that choice before us. You know, and it's not a choice between heaven and hell. He's not saying, well, if you do this, you're saved. If you don't do this, you're not saved. He's saying, look, you're going to be here for a while. I left you here on this word, world to be ambassadors for me, to be reflections of my image. And how long you walk and how difficult your walk is going to be is going to be on how well you obey these things. You can walk in my blessing. You can walk in my peace. Or you can walk under your own power. calls us to be patient and he calls us to be patient when that's not easy see so we we've got we've got this praise we've got these promises paul is building into his prayer that's going to be in verses 11 and 12 and so he starts by expressing thanks for them thanks for what god is doing he gives gives him praise he he reminds them and himself of god's mercy and his blessings and then he prays. Now, we'll get to that prayer in just a second, but I want to I just mention this to you. In order to pray the prayer that we're about to, to hear, Paul needs to know these people. He need, doesn't need to know them intimately, but he needs to know where they are spiritually. He needs to know enough about them to be able to pray this prayer. 
He need, and in order to know them, he needs to be thinking about them. And so that's why these letters are writing back and forth. This is why Timothy and Titus are going back and forth with news. He's trying to find out about this church that he feels responsible for. He's a spiritual father of them. So he's focusing on their godly points. He's giving thanks for who they are. He's recognizing that he is a joint heir with these people, that they are united in, with, uh, in Christ, even if they're separated by some distance. So they're on Paul's mind. They're in his heart. He's eating up all of the information he can get from them. So and in order to do that, and to do that objectively, that means that he has to set aside his expectations, his disappointments, his offenses, his judgmentalism, and, and any desire he may have to condemn them. And then if, if Paul does that, if, if, he, if, he, if he's successful in that, then he has to understand Scripture. If he's going to preach God's promises, it has to be more than a list of these are all the things God's promised you. He's got to be able to look at the Scripture and read the promises and read them in context and figure out how they work. So we're talking about a lifelong change of heart and change of mind as he ponders the Thessalonians, as he ponders their godliness and finds things to be thankful for them and then begins to apply scripture in a scripturally based way, taking the full counsel of scripture and applying it not just to the Thessalonians, but to his own heart. You can't pray this type of prayer without doing these things. So once he's laid these two building blocks of praise and promise, then he can pray. But look what he prays for. Check this out, verse 11 and 12. To this end, we always pray for you. There's that pray without ceasing again. Paul is always praying. We'll talk about how he does that in just a second. That our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every word, work of faith by his power. Now that resolve for good is a desire to do that which is good and beneficial in a godly way. And verse 12. So that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul prays that God's power will manifest itself in their lives in verse 11, that it might strengthen them, that it might sustain them, that it might work. Look at the wording used here. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling, not that you will become worthy, not that will you, you will earn worthiness, but that God will make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. They don't have to do this on their own. They don't have to conjure it up. They don't have to go out and do a bunch of good works. All they have to do is respond to the Spirit in them. It happens by God's power, by His presence, by the presence of power of the Spirit in them. So we see God's power manifests in their life, first half of 11. Second half of 11, we see God's purpose be fulfilled in them. God, God has made them to be these representations, these vessels. And God will enable them to do exactly what he's called them to do. And then in verse 12, we see the person of God manifested in their lives, that he might be glorified by them. And I love this so that. Paul says, I'm doing all this this praise of you. I'm doing all of the, I'm going over these promises and now I'm praying for you. And let me tell you why I'm doing that. 
I mean, this would be a, a tremendous self-improvement course. I'm doing all that so you can become a better person. I'm doing all that so that you can prosper. I'm doing all that so that you can be a shining example of what it is to be successful. Okay? Here's what Paul says. I'm doing it so that, I love the so that's in the New Testament. It's usually preceded by a long teaching, and then you find out why the teaching's there. Paul's doing all this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. So that God's glory might manifest itself in your life. So that the people around you will see the transformation you're going through. So that the people around you will look upon you and see Jesus Christ. So that your life will be focused on the Lord Jesus Christ and the work he did on the cross. Even in your suffering. Even in your trials. In short, what Paul prays is for God to be glorified in everything that they do. Everything that they do would point towards God and his glory. Point towards his son, Jesus Christ, and redemption available to him, through him. So we have these these three building blocks of prayer. Prayer, promises, and... I'm sorry, praise, promises, and prayer. See, that's... That's what more looks like. Is there more? This is it right here. This is an incredible prayer. Do you see what Paul means when he says we can pray without, pray, without ceasing? Th- th- this isn't just Paul getting down on his knees and saying, Lord, I've got some requests for you. This is Paul living a life of communion and prayer. This is Paul aware of everything that's going on around him. This is Paul in communication with those around him, trying to be a reflection of God, learning, listening, growing, helping people grow. So it's not just that time in supplication that he prayed, that, that, uh, that is Paul's prayer. It is his entire life. He's looking to find Jesus in the people around him. He's looking to show the people around him Jesus Christ. And he wants to do that without ceasing. And he wants his life to be totally, 100% focused on the glory of God. I love that. It's a great lesson. It's something we can appropriate right now. I, I, believe, I believe it's going to take time, at, at, at least for me, as, as I walk in this, it takes time to shift my thinking. It's so easy for me to just sit and say, hey, God, I've got some things I need you to do today. Here they are. Get back to me when they're done. Okay. I, I think God, don't get me wrong. I believe God wants to hear our supplications. I believe that he shows his faithfulness in being true to his word when we show our faithfulness to pray. So those are good things. And Paul's a good example. But I think we have a better example. Do you see you see how Jesus Christ has already done this? Paul's, Paul's not coming up with something new here. He's just showing us what he learned from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came down and began to become thankful for 
the way his father was moving and those who came to him. And then he reminded them of God's promises, even as they were being fulfilled right before, before their eyes. He suffered. He was thankful in the moment. God, forgive them. They know not what they do. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. In the middle of suffering that you and I will never know, Jesus remained thankful and oriented on God's promises. And then he prayed. What did Jesus pray? We read it at the beginning of service. Father, be glorified in them as I've shared your glory. That's a great lesson, isn't it? Check this out. We know it's true. Why do we know it's true? Jesus died. And then he came back to life. He gained victory over sin and death. And so we know that everything that Jesus said and promised he would do, he will do. Let's pray. Lord, we give you all praise. We give you all glory and honor. We pray that your spirit would move in us as we pray, Lord. That you would, if we would be humbly before you, ask that you be patient with us as we learn these things, Father. And help us to be patient as we teach others. And we pray, Father, that as you continue to transform us, continue to sanctify us, that we would become better messengers of your love, better messengers of your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray.